G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast, this time with a special guest all the way from the USA. Now, a few things have been happening in this time. Jamie's jumped on and done a few Instagram lives, and we thought we'd jump on and record a podcast with one of the guests that we had on the Instagram live. Yes, it's Ryan Ruffles. Now, as I said, a lot of things happening. Jamie started a Facebook, private Facebook group, and that's another way for connecting with the Mental Mastery guys, and it's just a place to share some content and share some articles and share basically anything that's for the everyday golfer like you and me and it's something that uh, Jamie's hoping to grow so if you want to connect with us there's another way of connecting and jumping on there today special interview with Ryan Ruffles all the way from the states on the Instagram live the other day it just became apparent that there was a lot of really important information for for us to to learn from Ryan and it just made sense to get him on as a guest so here he is coming down just after the music welcome to the mental mastery golf podcast by dare to dream the show dedicated to fun, practical mental performance strategies for your golf game. Join mental performance coach Jamie Glazier and co-host Ross Flanagan as they discuss how to manage your mind in one of the craziest sports there is. Ryan Ruffles and Jamie Glazier, good morning, how are we? Good evening and good morning. Yeah, good evening, good morning. Ryan over there, where are you, Ryan? In Florida, is that right? Yeah, I'm in Orlando at the moment. Jamie, good to see you again, mate. You too, mate. You too, yes. In uh, in sunny Melbourne this morning, it uh, looks a bit chilly out there, but the sun's shining, so... Uh, it's not, not too bad. I've, I've been up in the car for a while, so um, no, it's not too bad out there. It's going to be okay. Hey, Ryan, thanks for jumping on and joining us on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. It, uh, As I said in the introduction, it became, I guess, really apparent to, to Jamie and uh, myself that you know, getting you on and having a bit of a deep dive chat and recording the episode as a podcast rather than just an Instagram live was going to be really important and really appreciate you jumping on and um, giving us your time. Now, mate, before I hand you over to Jamie, I just thought there's maybe a couple of things that I'd like to... You know, run through with you and mm-hmm. you've obviously spent uh, a lot of time over the journey with the great man that uh, I can see on the screen we're doing this via zoom spent a lot of time with the great man there and you know one thing's in, in common between yourself and some of his other clients that we've had the privilege to have a chat to Maddie and uh, Herbie you all give him a bit of crap you all give him a bit a bit of a bit of stick <laughs> what's uh yeah. what, <laughs> what's with that yeah there's plenty of it uh he's pretty easy man to dish out to so um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just so we get it going. No, it's it's good fun. As you've probably heard from the other boys as well, there's there's plenty of seriousness and getting down to business that goes on with in our sport and our profession, any profession. So it's nice to be able to with your service providers be able to joke around a bit and have a bit of fun with it as well. So I give it to him, he gives it back. It's yeah, it's a bit of good fun. So I do imagine that there's there's a fair bit of seriousness there when you do get down to doing some work that it gets pretty serious. Is that right? Yeah, for the most. I mean, we definitely get into some deeper stuff where we've got to knuckle down a little bit more but it's still anytime we're doing any part of the game it's always a bit of fun we're always having fun with it i'm not one that operates to uh, there's a time and a place for being very serious and focused but even when i'm most focused i'm still having a lot of fun with it so we i mean you catch us most of the time we're probably having a joke or something like that Jamie, how have you been going up there, mate, uh, at home in uh, in Melbourne? What have you been up to? Yeah, Roscoe, look, it's, uh, I think I'm in about day, God knows how many, I think it's nearly 30 days, actually more than that, in isolation. So, yeah, it's, um, it's been 
it's getting challenging, that's for sure. It's it's just I'm using myself as a little bit of a, I suppose, as a guinea pig for how most people are going to be responding to a situation like this or how some people are going to be responding. And I'm checking in with clients, you know, a lot more often, especially the ones that are based here in Australia that, that, that haven't got access to a golf course that, that basically are stuck at home. You know, the going stir-crazy is something that's really starting to kick in now. So I'm just checking in with clients a little bit more consistently to make sure that they're, first and foremost, mentally they're, you know, they're in a they're in a, as healthy a place as possible during this phase. And especially for the elite guys where golf is, is their, you know, their number one sort of priority and their, and their profession at the... The element of doubt surrounding when they'll get back and that sort of stuff can can certainly start to um, to make them go a little a little sort of stir crazy and, and their mind can sort of start to go down a path that, that may not be super productive. So just making sure everyone's uh, you know staying as healthy as possible and you know some of the guys in the states like Ruff, you know they've still got that ability to go out and practice uh, work on their game, which has obviously helped them stay somewhat sane at this time. So the last time we recorded an episode, you were talking about Ryan because you were due to spend you know some time with uh, ryan over there in orlando yeah. and you know it was on his recommendation basically that you drove straight to the airport rather than going to do some work and great, great recommendation that was got out of there yeah so um you know what's it been like for you two guys working together as a team during that time since you came back from from the u.s well i think for rough and i we haven't uh, we haven't done a huge amount the past uh, sort of month or so the good thing is I mean, I check in with him and uh, we, we caught a phone call the other day just to, to make sure everything's sort of going well. And he's got, you know, some great people around him. Luke Mackey, his uh, strength and conditioning coach, who's a really good friend. Uh, he's, you know, nearly probably spending every day or every second day with, with Luke. And that's great from my point of view to have someone like Luke there for, for rough. But also just it's a great opportunity for, for Ruff and Dennis, his swing coach, to, to spend a bit of time doing some work. And um, so, you know, for me, it's uh, sometimes my service can take a back seat um, and then sometimes my service takes a front seat. So it's just one of those things with uh, professional athletes. It's, um, so, yeah, we haven't, uh, we haven't spent too much time doing work together. But uh, at the same time, I think there's things that Ruff might be doing on a daily basis every couple of days that are just helping keep him you know, uh, in a good place mentally. and Ryan, with your work with Dennis, you know, I'm, I'm going to yeah. assume that Dennis is still back in Melbourne, yeah? Yeah, he is, yeah. yeah. So how do you, how is that working for you being, you know, so remote and, and what do you do there? How do you, um, how do you manage that? Well, I mean, I always live in the States and Dan's obviously always in Melbourne yeah. or where he lives anyway. So we, we do a lot of it throughout the year anyway, FaceTime sessions. Yeah. Um, I, I got a tripod. Um, I got good internet on the range. I just set it up behind me or in front of me. I throw my headphones in and he just pretty much watches me go throughout a little bit of a practice session, whether that's putting, chipping, uh, hitting balls. And we just go through some stuff just like we would if he was here. Every now and again, I'll jump off the call, send him a few videos so he can look at them a bit slower. But yeah, it works out great because just like me as a professional golfer, I kind of need to keep hitting some balls, get a club in my hand most days to just make sure I don't lose it too much. It's the same for him. He reckons he needs to keep coaching, yeah. keeps need to see swings and stuff like that so he can stay sharp as well. So it works really well for me. I'm not doing a ton of golf practice. I'm probably trying to get out once a day for about two or three hours just to keep things good and where they need to be, make sure that if we get cold on in a couple of weeks, notice that I'm ready to go. I'm not too far behind the eight ball and have to catch up. So we do that a lot throughout the year when he can't get over here and 
I need a little bit of help. It's pretty amazing what we can do with this technology and coaching and talking just like we're doing now. It's just... Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, if there's one thing that uh, this period has brought has brought us all together a little bit closer and, and being able to connect via technology and being... You know, I would have liked to have had shares in Zoom a, a month or so ago because I'd probably never heard of it yeah. back then, but uh, it's gone yeah. cocoa bananas now. Now, as I said right at the start, you know, we had you on, or Jamie had you on, sorry, as, a, as an Instagram live guest and became very apparent that there was a lot of questions, a lot of people you know wanting to tap into some of your experiences some of your knowledge and just get more of an insight and that's why we wanted to record this so jamie i might you know flick back to you now and basically take off where that instagram live started to cover off and and cover off what you wanted to talk to ryan about today yeah look i think there's definitely a couple of key elements of that conversation rough that we had on instagram live that i thought i thought one obviously you were you know great in sharing some of it which i didn't i didn't expect and that was that was great but I think there's some definitely some things that golfers in general, both elite golfers sort of that, that are at that professional level and some club level golfer stuff, the elite amateurs even that, that would, you know, can really get a lot from it. And um, I think if we go back to the to the very beginning, you know, yourself as, a, as an amateur golfer, obviously, just give us a little bit of, of that insight into where you were as an amateur. The, you turned pro at 17, correct? Yeah, nearly 18, but I was 17, yeah. Yep, 17. So what was your, your amateur career, the sort of year or two prior to that? Where was that progressing and where did that get to when you turned pro? Um, yeah, so I obviously had a pretty good amateur career. I think when I turned, I was maybe three or four in the world amateur rankings. I'd won a couple Aussie juniors in a row. I just lost the Asian amateur which is a chance to go to Augusta because we had the rain shortened last day. So we didn't get, yeah. to, I was one back going into the final day and I was playing great shot, I think six under, which was the lowest round of the day on Saturday. And then never got a chance to play the final round, which is a bit disappointing. And that was my last amateur event. At that point I'd played well in Aussie masters, Aussie opens. I'd played well in an RBC Canadian open as an amateur, won a few Aussie juniors, won the junior world, uh, Tory Pines. So I just, for me, it was like, do I sit around here and wait to be try and become number one amateur in the world? Or do I just get started with what I'm going to do eventually anyway? Do I just start learning, get get involved and just see what it's all about? And for me, that was the best path. I had uh, a lot of sponsorship backing from Nike, from Golf Australia, a few other places. I had some great opportunities to play some PGA Tour events. And for me, kind of weighing up the chances, it was like if I go to college, probably the only thing, the probably the only thing that can happen is I could lose a little bit of it because I've got pretty much everything that you could want starting out your pro career. So yeah, bit the bullet and went for it. And um, kind of when I turned pro, I thought if it takes me four or five years to get to the PGA Tour, that's the same time that I'd be graduating college as a 22-year-old. So even if it took me five years, which to when you're 17 seems like forever, it's it was like, well, I'm still first year out of college. And if you get your PGA Tour card first year out of college, it's sensational. So I thought if I can give myself these years to learn how to be a professional, the travel, the finances, the everything that goes with it, that it'd be a great learning experience. And that's how it's kind of turned out. And I've now been able to figure out what what works for me and where, yeah, and what I need to do to play good golf. Yeah, I mean, that's, as you said, you know, like a really good amateur coming out of college, one of the better collegiate players, even that journey from that point to getting on the PGA Tour, on average, it probably takes five to seven years any case. Mm. So you're looking at, you know, 27 years old getting on the PGA Tour where, the way that you've done it is 
won't say fast tracking it. It's just skipping a step that you, you know. Yeah, it's unique. I think probably to my situation yeah. a little bit because you've got to have the backing to be able to do that. Because if you turn pro at seventeen and you don't get any sponsor exemptions and you don't have any backing, well, I mean that can go down in a hurry yeah. if you miss a Q school and you don't have money and then where do you go like I said I was a little bit different in terms of I had a good amateur career and I was I had some opportunities so I went for it but it's such a yeah. personal experience that one about when to turn pro it's so uh, yeah. it's so here's here's an interesting question then let's say that funding and that backing wasn't there mm -hmm. what would your decision be I probably would have gone to college for a couple of years because if that wasn't there well then I'm probably not good enough the fact that I was one of the better amateurs in the world at that point and quite young I think that's probably I mean if I'm 50th amateur in the world well two things I'm probably not good enough to turn pro at that point as a 17 year old yeah. And because of that, I don't have the backing there. So that probably would have made my decision quite easy that I need to go to college for a little bit, maybe bump up my market value, so to speak, a little bit to try and get those opportunities with management companies that could help me out. But it just so happened for me that it was just a little bit younger and yeah. I thought it was a good opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Look, and as you said, you know, I think the great thing you mentioned there was every decision as an elite amateur to turn professionally is so personal and there are so many oh, factors. Yeah. There are so many factors that, that go into it. And I think a term you use there, market value, is a really interesting one because I see a lot through the years guys wanting to turn pro or not wanting to turn pro. And sometimes I don't see it, you know, as not for the right reasons, but it may be for the, for the, for the wrong reasons that they're making those decisions. And, um, you know, comparison is a big one you know, comparing themselves to someone like you that did it at that age or someone else. Like, talk to me about... Yeah, I mean, that's complete. You can't be... Every situation is so unique. You can't be comparing one to another. I mean, yeah, there's so many factors that go into it and there's such a... And I don't think... We weren't really working together so much when I turned pro, I don't think. No. Um, a little bit, so, but not very much at all, no. Yeah, not very much. Um, and so that was, it was a very, very big decision that was discussed among a lot of parties with, that I was close to or what to do in that situation. It wasn't yeah. just like, oh, Jason Day turned pro when he was 18, so I think I'm just as good as Jason Day, so I'm going to turn pro now. Yeah, um, yeah. There's yeah. so much that went into it. Like, And sure, some people might jump at a bit of cash or whatever, and if, if that's what you want to do and if you think that's – you're good enough and that's something like carrot that'll get you going well then great but there's so many different re what makes you tick as a golfer some people playing for cash they're like well if once i get out there and i start playing for cash it's going to hype me up well then go for it but some yeah. people are maybe not quite ready for that yet it's just uh, there's no right or wrong answer it's just it's a one that you got to take for, for a younger bloke coming up it's one that you got to take into a lot of consideration because there's a lot of good golfers yeah yeah, for sure. And I think the, the comparison game, the game of comparing yourself to others is such a common one for a lot of, you know, young elite golfers, even, you know, uh, professional golfers. So talk to, talk to us about whether you have fallen into that sort of that comparison game at all with, with anyone when you, you know, when you turn pro. Oh, you're you you setting me up here, aren't you? No. I'm not at all. I'm actually not, to be honest. I'm, <laughs> no, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, this is a good, this is a great topic because it's exactly the hole that I fell into. 
when I was, I think, so I turned pro 2016, played great for a seven. I mean, it's all relative, but for a 17 year old, I made four out of the seven cuts that I uh, got on the PGA tour. I had one top 20, two top thirties, and the other ones were like 40th or so. And yeah. some great events. I played well at Arnold Palmer Invitational, played well at Memorial and just everything. But I never stopped for a sec to go, wow, that was really good effort. Give myself credit for it. It was always like I just missed out on my on getting to those Corn Ferry Tour finals. Yeah. And because I missed out, now where do I go? What, what are the people that made it? What are they doing? And I never stopped for a sec to go, wow, you're 17. You've made four out of seven cuts. You've nearly made the Corn Ferry finals within four months of being a pro. Like, chill out. Things are going well. So I never gave myself that credit. So then you start to play with players who are – do little parts of the game better than you you start to see for me it was i started living with curtis luck and he was at that point driving the ball really really straight and i live i'm living with him and every time i play with him it's just like monotonous straight and i've never played that game i hit the ball a long long way i hit it quite a long ways past curto but i don't hit it quite as straight but that's my strength is the fact that i can hit a long way but all of a sudden you're like, wow, if I could just hit a little bit straighter, imagine what I could do if I could just hit a little bit straighter. And you start changing up things that made you a good player in the first place. And so all of a sudden you've changed a strength trying to find something else into a weakness. And the other parts of your game that might have been weaknesses to set off with but you could work around are now even more exposed because everything's kind of just going down that snowball of um, – and yeah, so I got in and I started trying to hit it a bit straighter because um, I thought I needed to do that, try to hit a fade off the tee because that was the big, I guess, craze at the time of Dustin was hitting fades and a lot of people, a lot of long hitters were hitting fades because it's the easy shot to hit and I've never done that my whole life and it got to a point where I'd get on a tee with a left to right wind and my entire life I've hit a drop against that wind but now I'm working on hitting a fade with it and under the pump you always go back to what's natural to you yeah and at that point had nothing to fall back on it was like now what do I do I'm stuck and I think we got I think I think I was with you in California where I got to tee box and I was like I don't see how I can hit it down there and so it's such a comparison such a it's such a hard one it's very very hard not to do but so important that you don't because it's it's just no, it's just no good. And I, that was the biggest thing. I think that's the biggest difference from who I am now to who I was then is that I now give myself a pat on the back for what I'm good at and what I achieve as opposed to always being so critical of what I wasn't doing quite so well. And look, I think it's, uh, you, you said something there that's just so spot on. It's so hard not to do, like comparing yourself to others in the industry that you're in and, and elite sport and golf especially it's it's so difficult not to do because there are so many facets of the game that it's just not normal to be really good at all of them. So it's just human nature to look at someone and go, oh, they do this really well and it'd be great to do that. And you just you can lose sight of who you are as an athlete quite quickly. Jamie, trying to bring that conversation back to, you know, the everyday golfer that, you know, you and I are talking to every day. And I see, you know, whether they're 20 handicappers, 25 handicappers, 10 handicappers, doing similar sorts of things all the time and they don't have the technical ability to, to change from a fade and predominantly you know they're slicing the ball and they come in and they want to hit a draw because they've seen someone else hit a draw and I just want to hit seen their playing partner hit a draw and they come in the language that they that these guys are using are my mate hits this shot and I want to hit that shot so I'm working on a draw and you just look at the swing and it's never going to be a draw swing yeah they've yes. got a, they've got a, they've got a left to right the concept of just working with 
and fine-tuning what already works really well is sometimes a hard thing for the everyday golfer to really ingrain in their mind and just think. Well, I think, I mean, bringing that back to the everyday golfer, say the average, just the 15 handicapper who goes around your course in Melbourne or whatever. I mean, you've got four, four guys in a foursome and who knows what their professions are normally. One guy's short and fat. The other guy's tall and skinny. One guy sits at a desk all day. The other guy's works in construction. I mean, there's so many different body types and different things that go into a golf swing and mm -hmm. into hitting a golf shot. Yep. If I'm looking at my mate who's hit over there hitting draws, but he's never hit a fade in his life, and I all of a sudden start trying to copy him, my body's probably not capable of producing that yeah. after after so many years. And that's where I think maybe the amateur doesn't quite understand with professionals how hard we work on our body to be able to produce the swing that we produce. Mm. It's not just like we step up every day and that's just how we swing it. And so it's just, it's impossible to try and compare, especially the average golfer to another, say, call it average golfer. I mean, 15 handicaps better than a lot better yeah. than average, but that sort of player, um, there's just so many things that go into it. And unless you're getting coached from a coach who's guiding that, uh, it's certainly not worth trying to copy someone else. Yeah. And I think, that's such a, a, a great point, Ruff. I don't. I think that the, the average golfer, the club golfer, and even to a certain degree, elite amateurs who you know I work a lot with, they understand fitness and the importance of strength and that that sort of stuff. But I'm not sure they understand the importance of the body in regard to their ability to swing the golf club efficiently or effectively for what they're working on with their coach. And um, from sort of my philosophy, when I get a client to come to me, and okay, they might have. Uh, some unproductive mental patterns, you know, even, for example, the, the yips in the short game. Um, they realise that as a mental pattern and they come to seek help from me. But once, you know, after a little while, if I diagnose things, I'm like, hang on a minute. The mental pattern is the last thing that, that is triggering this, this performance. Mm. You know, it's, it's a technical deficiency, but potentially it could be from a physical limitation. So... I send them off to a golf coach to go and have a look at the mechanic side of things, but a lot of it could be driven from, you know, a, a physical limitation, as, as you said, Ruff, from, a, from their profession. They're hunched in a chair or, or they've got, you know, a, a dodgy shoulder because of, of being a builder for so many yeah. years or, or a football injury or whatever. So, you know, I look at the um, – when I, when I talk to my clients, I look at it as a tier structure. It's sort of – for me, I think the body is the number one most important element to play, you know, good, consistent golf, get the body right. Then once your body's right, your coach has got some sort of chance of being able to get you to swing a golf club the way he or she wants you to swing a golf club. And then once you've got those good foundations in place, then the mental game can come in and actually I don't have as many sort of limitations to work with. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so spot on. I mean, I think the body dictates what you're able to uh, – it gives you a blueprint of what you're actually able to do as a golfer. And then from there, you can try and fine tune that a little bit more by working on your body, working on your swing, working on your the mental side of the game as well. Um, but I mean, you just look at the swings on the PJ Tour. I mean, I think probably the most interesting or one of for me is I'm coached by Dennis McDade. Dennis also coaches Leash. We Leash and I couldn't be more different human beings, and the way we approach golf is 
not even close to similar, but we're both, obviously, Leach is very accomplished compared to me at the moment, but we're both good golfers, but we go about it with the same coach in very, very, very different ways. And that's, I mean, you just look at us standing side by side, Leach is a lot bigger than I am, a lot taller, um, and I'm shorter and I'm slimmer and I'm maybe a little bit more flexible, but he works around his limitations unbelievably and is one hell of a golfer. Um, and he certainly, for me, coming out of this little hole, been a bit of a blueprint for me of someone who just is very good at doing his own thing and never really strayed too far from that. Yeah, look, I think one thing I wrote down here when you were talking earlier about, you know, losing losing who you were as a golfer and going to hit the, you know, the straighter drives and, 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 and that sort of stuff was you know, really knowing who you are. And I think you didn't, you couldn't have said it any better. Leash is, he's just so good at being leash and doing leash. And, you know, you look at a lot of great golfers. I mean, there's um, a million guys like that. Herbie's fantastic at doing that. Yes. Um, yeah. Herbie, you don't look at his swing and go, wow, I want to swing it like that, so to speak. I mean, I know he'll listen to this and give me a bit of stick later. But can I, he, can I tell you, can I tell you something? Yesterday, we got a video from, from Herbie, and I'm really, I apologize, Herbie, for sharing this, but um, he's never been into strength and conditioning. Never. Like, just not very big into the gym at all. This last sort of month or so, he's actually been training a lot and, and, and really doing a good job. But we got a video yesterday in the a, in a team group chat. He's riding a bike wearing yellow lycra. Good. Respect. And bike gloves. Good. I mean, you know, as you said, for the most part, yeah, he he just he knows who he is, and yeah, Herb's great at that. He's always yeah. been good at that. I think Leash is a great example of it. But there's just a million of them on the PJ Tour that just haven't gotten in their own way, and have just been very. You keep everyone who you're working with close, and you don't listen too much from the kind of the outside noise that goes around you, and yeah. you're confident in the people around you are leading you down the right path, and you just go balls to the wall with that a bit and you just go after it and you work hard and you yeah. go down that path. But yeah, that starts, I think all of, for me, all of that starts with buying into your team. You got to have a hundred percent buy-in and you can't kind of be 80% in or 90% in. As soon as you do that, you kind of, you're prone to listening to the outside noise going through Instagram and seeing a million different swings that kind of half look like yours and you think this might fix it or, whatever like that, it, it's so important that you just have 100% buy-in to everyone that's working with you. I think that there is, for me, the biggest separator from the mindset and mentality of a, a professional player. And I'll say, I'll use an elite am a little bit, but a club golfer especially. Like a club golfer is, you know, it, it, they're taking different swing feels, different swing thoughts to the tee every second oh. round and... Well, you go, I mean, I'm sure all your Instagrams are the same, but you go on the Explore page on your Instagram. I'm sure you see a million different golf swings yeah. on there from all these coaches that have hundreds and thousands of followers. Yeah. And they'll talk about, oh, if you early extend in your swing and you stand up a bit, that's no good. It's going to cause hooks and slices. And if you do this, there are 90% of tour players stand up a bit coming down in the golf swing. Leash stands up more than anyone. He's yeah. a hell of a player. Like yeah. Yeah. a lot of these things that are coached online are perfect. Biomechanically, are great. They work. Yeah. But old mate who's sitting in a chair for 12 hours a day cannot actually achieve them. Yeah. And it's you can fall down that rabbit hole as well. Hey, talk to me about the term 
perfectionism and how you balance that with being a successful golfer because perfectionism is a trait that uh, a lot of us may have, especially high achievers. Um, and for sort of club-level golfers that have perfectionism in other parts of their, their life, in their business, and that can just be transferred into their, into their golf. Talk to me a little bit about your relationship with perfectionism and, and you know, that journey over the past sort of five, six, seven years or so. Yeah, I mean, I think like we kind of spoke about a bit earlier, I think as soon as you start comparing, comparing yourself starts from wanting all parts of your game to be at a really high level. And that's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that um, unless you start really acting on that because it's impossible. I mean, Tiger in 2000 in his absolute prime, which is probably the best golf we've basically seen from anyone ever, wasn't a very straight driver of the ball. And that's fine. But it was basically the best golf we've seen ever. So it just goes to show how hard it is to be very, very good in each aspect of the game. And sure, we want to, especially me. I'm one of the more driven people that I know, I guess. I've always been that way. But I've kind of drifted a little bit away from chasing perfection to just trying to do, just be super efficient, super driven in my day-to-day life as opposed to like a, like a blanket over what I'm trying to achieve. I just kind of try and do everything every day to a very high level. Yeah. And that just doesn't include my training and my golf. I think that I think my dad put it really well back in the day. He said he was he was working with a few of the younger guys at Tennis Australia. And as soon as he could see a bit of laziness on the tennis court, he said the first thing I want you to start with is making your bed every morning. Keeping your room clean. Just clothes are in order, they're washed, beds clean. He says that's where it starts. He says yeah. you start by you can't just switch it on, switch it off and just hope that you can when you get to the course you're going to be spot on and then when you get home you're going to be a lazy bum you kind of it starts at home it starts with the little things and that builds into what you do every day on the golf course and so I kind of put a pretty good I was pretty conscious and I think I mean we worked together through it back in late 2018 early 2019 of just trying to do a really good job every day yeah um me in my practice not wasting too much time not spending as much time and I'm sure that sounds monotonous you've heard that a hundred times but it's so important for me because then I uh, for me mentally I just feel more at ease when I get to the first tee that I've kind of checked all the boxes that I need to I've done the right things consistently over and over and over and now I'm ready to go versus I need my short game to be this good and my putting to be this good and my driver to be this good or else I got no chance which is kind of the way I was thinking at one point there in 2018-2017 yeah that sort of rigidity that that we speak about on the podcast you know we we spoke about on instagram live that that rigidity of of having to have things here and there just creates that extra stress and tension and you made an interesting comment which when i bring this up to clients that i work with or if i'm giving a, a talk or a seminar at a club they look at me like really bizarre but about routines and about how one, my philosophy of the routines don't have to be and pro- probably shouldn't be the same every time, seeing that you never hit the same golf shop. But on the Instagram Live, you, you uh, we spoke about the routines and I asked you about your pre-shot routine. There was a question come in. So give us your response to, to that again about your pre-shot routine and whether you have one and what does it look like? Yeah, so my pre-shot routine is completely... My pre-shot routine is completely fluid. It's basically, I think we, in the past, it hasn't, not so much even been with you, but with other sports sites, 
that I've worked with or tried to work with, it's always, there's been a lot about pre-shot routine and it sounds good, looks good, but for me, it doesn't make any sense because sometimes I get behind the ball and I'm not comfortable whatsoever. So I take three or four practice swings to try and kind of feel what I need to feel to hit a shot. And sometimes I love it. The pin's right where I want it to be. The wind's, I got my number and I don't even need a practice. I don't even need a practice swing. I'm just ready to go. So for me, it's all about being super clear before I pull before I pull the trigger, even pull a club out of the bag, super clear on what I'm trying to do. And then I just wait till I'm comfortable. I just take a few practice swings, see the shot that I need to see. And if I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go. I don't wait for it. I, I think it'd make me more anxious, more nervous if I felt ready to go. But I'm like, no, I've got to take my two practice swings here. Yeah. Um, yeah. just because just for the sake of them yeah. for no other yeah. reason for me if I'm ready that's the best feeling in the world if I'm confident like let's get yeah. in there let's hit it um, yeah. and then obviously the opposite of that is when you're not quite there and, and I my cardio a little longer whatever it is but as long as the picture's clear as long as, long as there's no I, I think we've talked about it, and clarity for me is the biggest part as long as what I'm trying to do is crystal clear there's no hesitation about that I'm completely confident that what the shot I'm about to try and hit is the one, yeah. then I got no issues with what I do from there. Um, yeah. I can, yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's such a, you used a couple of words there that, that we've spoken a lot about on the podcast and, you know, from a routine point of view, again, things probably mentally should be fluid because we go through different stages and, you know, rough a couple of years back when you weren't that comfortable and you weren't that confident, trying to create a bit of structure in your routine was healthy because it, it engaged your mind in a specific process that could block out a lot of the, the negatives or where your mind could have gone. But when you're more comfortable now, then, then you create that bit more fluidity. But, you know, my philosophy around the routine is as long as you're ticking off the three Cs that, that have clarity, you have confidence for the shot and you're ready to commit to it, then However that looks, it doesn't actually matter. The most important thing is that you feel comfortable, you've got clarity, and that you're confident and ready to go. Um, whether you have two or three practice swings or whatever else, that's, that's irrelevant. So, um, yeah, so, you, you know, you, you, you tapped into and mentioned some of those things really well. But um, I'm not sure if he's still there or we've lost him, Roscoe. He looks like he's just frozen on the screen. Yeah. You all right, mate? Just cut out for a second. Not sure what happened there. Maybe just yeah, no, all good. No, just mentioning about how... You know, we talked about the three C's a lot on this uh, on the podcast and, and in, in the work that I do, the, the clarity, confidence and commitment. As long as you're experiencing those states during a routine, then how that looks doesn't matter. You know, your two or three practice swings or whatever are, are irrelevant. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was really good. I think very valuable for a lot, of, uh, a lot of golfers out there. For me, those three C's are very important, being very clear about what I'm going to do and then from there just send it a bit. Um, yeah. Like you said, if you're struggling, putting a pre-shot routine around it, putting a bit of structure around uh, something like that is going to be very important. It kind of helped me just give me something to fall back on when the golf wasn't quite there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then once I started to recoup the game a bit, we could we could start to be a bit more fluid with it as yeah. I started to get probably in more high-pressure situations because I'm playing better, obviously. Yeah. They just work a little bit better for me. Yeah, look, and... And obviously having that structure is, is really important, but it needs to be a fluid structure because 
you want to be able to, when you're coming down the stretch of a tournament or over a club level golfer, you've got three or four holes to go. You've got the best round of your life in the, in the mix. You can, you can, you know, you can shoot that, that career best round. Having some structure to follow to control what your mind pays attention to is, uh, is really important, but you also need to be present to the moment and be fluid with what you're feeling and what you're experiencing and your relationship to the shot that's ahead and, and all those mm. those things. So I think that um, yeah, structure with a bit of that fluidity is uh, is is pretty important. So um, so rough with with all the yeah, Roscoe. Sorry, Ryan. When you said uh, just send it a bit there, what does send it mean to you? Me, it just means like I've ticked off. I mean, it, it's probably it starts way back for me. It goes like I've done my practice. Check. I've done my gym stuff. Check. I've warmed up well. Check. I've clear about what I want to do. Check. Got my number. Done. Like I've ticked off every box I can tick off. Now just have a crack. Like it's like free. It's like a free pass to just have a crack now. Yeah. Um, I guess what I was thinking is, and that answers it well, you know, I, once again, I see a lot of guys that they step up and they think, oh, I'm just going to hit this 90% or I'm just going to hit this 80 you know, and they put numbers around how effectively they're going to make a pass at the ball. The thing I hate about that is how horrendously inaccurate those numbers are. Like when someone goes, oh, I'm just going to hit this driver 80%. Well, at three, say it's at 250 meters, 80% is not going 240 meters. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like not even close. It's not what you should be doing. Think 80%, if you start putting numbers and that's, hey, I'm going to swing this 80%. To me, that's just hesitation. That's, um, that's not very attacking. It's not very decisive to, in my mind. And I think that's that's the key, the decisive. And absolutely. Sorry, Jamie, I interrupted there. No, no, it's great. I mean, it's, it's so interesting how we look at what we're trying to achieve as a, as a golfer mentally, for example, what we're trying to achieve when they get to the first tee is the ability to give up control, so to speak, to just go and play and just react to the situation, react to the shot. But to be able to achieve that, there is so much control that you've had to have in your training and your preparation. So, you know, the term control the controllables, all your training and preparation you've done well should equate to getting to the first tee and go, okay, let's just go play golf today and and let's just see all that training and all that preparation, let's see what that delivers today. But for a lot of club golfers, they don't train, they don't prepare, so then they actually are forced to go into control mode and try and really control everything and play with tension, play with, with stress, play with worry or concern or fear because they don't know what's going to happen. Where someone like Ruff, he's trained very well, prepared very well, he goes to the first team knowing he's got a sort of a perimeter of performance. He knows what's going to happen. It's just within these sort of, of, you know, brackets, I suppose, or perimeters. And I think that for me, what, when you say what makes you tick, what makes you work well as a golfer, for me, doing all that stuff, all my training, everything like that, that just gives me like access mentally to just being able to have a crack. And if I have a crack and it comes out completely miserable, it's not because I haven't prepared or I haven't, I've just missed 
um, it's just whatever is what it is. Like, it's not a big deal to me anymore. Like it used to be a big deal to me. But now that I feel like I've got good systems in place, I can work my ass off at them. And then I can just go out there and see what it produces. And I think if you don't do that, or for me anyway, when I take shortcuts around practice or shortcuts around the mental game or shortcuts around nutrition or something like that, it's for me, I don't feel, I don't feel as confident. Um, I don't feel like almost like I have the right to play well, if that makes sense. And that's not the same for everyone, but that's just what makes me tick is I feel like I, you kind of earn the right to play really well. Yeah. And that's, I love that. that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And there are so many branch elements and branch effects of that mentally. You relate, you you know, your relationship with failure is a lot healthier because you've, you've done all the work. So you're not, you're not so scared of failure because you know, or have this perception that your performance is within these perimeters. So, Mm. and, and you're comfortable with, with all of those, you know, like it's okay. Well, today things just didn't quite go my way. I've got one unlucky break. Um, didn't hold the, the, the putts I'd like and I shot 72. Well, that's that's an average day or a poor day. Then you've got that healthy relationship with failure because of all the work you've been do, you've been putting in. And um, so, yeah. I, I mean, even, even if it's 78, it sucks. It's yeah. horrendous. It's no fun and yeah. I never want to do it again. But as long as for me, as long as that hasn't come down to taking shortcuts, yeah. then yeah. I'm completely fine with it. Yeah. But if yeah. it's a result of me taking shortcuts in areas of my life that I normally wouldn't, then I'm, then it's not right with me. Yeah. And I think Roscoe, that, that, that what Russ just spoke about there is the, the, the different mindset as well from a professional golfer has a mindset around golf as it's not just about this round. It's not just one round. It's, it's, it's a year long um, they've got a bit of a longer-term view of their golf from a reaction point of view. But club-level golfers, they make this round of golf that they're in right now the most important thing, and they become so reactionary to each round of golf. So, Ruff, you're all the times that you've spent the last bunch of years playing uh, either with you know with the club golfers out at uh, at Isleworth or in the pro ams that you play in. What would you say is the one the one thing that has stood out to you the most mentally that um, that they sort of they have a habit of that you would sort of one tip that you would give them mentally that you see you know improving their game? I think it's quite it's quite an interesting one. It's a it's a very different question from my perspective because I've actually the members at Isleworth are all highly successful yep. people in their own right. It doesn't have to be golf, so they've got kind of a really a lot of them have a really cool mindset around being a successful person so it's very easy to coach them same with proams most of the people that you find in a pj to a proam or whatever have been very successful yeah. in their own right that's why they're there so it's quite interesting speaking to those guys and watching them go about a tip or something that you give it versus maybe the odd 20 marker or something that you play with i think a lot of kind of people that i've played with socially the 20 markers and stuff like that that don't have too much of idea of what they're doing golf wise just look for like just a spark just 
out of nowhere that it just should be like, oh, well, he fixed my grip and now it should be, yeah, I should be good to go. Well, a lot of the guys that I've played with at Isleworth who I guess are a little bit more business mindset or kind of growth mindset is they're willing, like I think the other day I gave a tip to one of the members at Isleworth who's a big businessman over in the States and he was out on the range for hours, yeah. hours and hours just trying to work on this thing that I told him. And I, I think that's for me, I often look at a lot of amateurs and they get discouraged very quickly if something doesn't happen like immediately. Yeah. Um, and it's just not, we're just not in the right sport for that, for things happening immediately. Um, if you're going to make a change that's somewhat significant, it's going to take time. It's going to take hours. It's going to take a bit of commitment. And if that's what you want to do, if you're a 10, 20, 30 handicapper looking to improve, it's going to take time. It's, it's, there's no quick fix out there for as much as we'd like it. Cause if there was one, I bet you most of the PJ tour would have figured it out by now. Yeah, and I think too, what a great point to finish on, Roscoe, is comes back to almost what Ruff was saying at the very beginning of the podcast about patting yourself on the back, positive reinforcement, um, because things just aren't going to come quickly. This is golf and it's 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 the harshest, you know, for me mentally anyway, I think it's one of the harshest sports there is. Um, so just that positive reinforcement, keep patting yourself on the back, acknowledge the, the, the good things that you're doing. Um, that will help keep you on track and, and consistent with uh, with those you know processes that you you've got to pay attention to. Mate, absolutely. I've just sat back and watched the uh, chat between you two guys unfold, and I've learnt so much. And I think everyone who tunes into this podcast will get a lot out of it. And Ryan, we've got you to thank for that. Really appreciate you being so honest and open and giving of your thoughts and your time. We wish you all the best of luck getting through this period and when you get back to work it's going to be uh, we're going to look forward to you know keep checking in with you and uh, watching the journey unfold mate and I know that there's uh, great things ahead for you because you've got a great mindset and a great attitude and you know you've brought some of that for the listeners today so thank you from all of us mate really appreciate no. it cheers guys I appreciate you having me on thanks no, Ruff appreciate it mate no problems at all mate Love it. And, you know, I could I could chat all day to, to you and talk about that <laughs> stuff. But, um, well, anytime the, you want me back on, I'm happy to jump back on. So, Well, there you go. We'll take you up on that offer very, Beautiful. very soon, mate. Look all right. forward to it. Thanks again, everyone. Don't forget to check out the Facebook group that we've uh, set up. Jump in there because uh, it's going to be a great place to get a little bit more of a deeper dive and a bit of a closer, up-close personal look at what we're all going through. It's a place for sharing. It's a place for uh, for caring. Uh, if you could say that. And, um, yeah, we're looking forward to growing that group and, uh, yeah, just having another way to stay in touch more often and more directly. So, once again, thanks again to you, Ruff, Jamie Glazier. No worries. The Master, thank you very much. And until next time on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast, look forward to catching up with you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast by Dare to Dream. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head over to daretodream.com.au for exclusive access to the free video program, Eight Tips to an Unbreakable Mental Game. Join us next time on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast.